Welcome to another edition of the Hidden Layers Podcast, where we talk about all the exciting ways marketing, data, and deep learning are colliding. We love to talk about how AI and other technologies are affecting the world and marketing, while hopefully learning a few new things along the way. This episode, we're going to focus a little bit more on automation and the rise of the robots, which is the title of best-selling author Martin Ford's book. It's not surprisingly, not surprisingly, it's about AI, robots, job automation, and the future economy. I thought it was important for us uh, as an AI podcast to really focus a little bit on Martin Ford's work because the book and the topics that it goes over are very, very important to me personally and I think to all of us as a society. So I wanted to have him come in and talk to us about this book, The Rise of the Robots. He also has a new book coming out in November called Architects of Intelligence, which we'll touch on at the end. So welcome, Martin. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks for having me. So could you talk a little bit about Rise of the Robots uh, and how it, how it came about? Why did you decide to write this book? Well, I was running a small software company in Silicon Valley, um, and I started that in the mid-'90s, uh, back when Windows was really the hot thing. And, and back then, uh, software was a tangible product. I mean, it was shipped on CD-ROMs and so forth. So I, in my business, I had work for people to do to fulfill orders and so forth, and I saw over um, the course of time how rapidly those jobs evaporated, for example, just as software went digital and so forth. And that's what really got me thinking about it, I think, just seeing it happen in my own business and then thinking about the implications of that if it scaled across the whole economy. And uh, I actually wrote an earlier book way back in 2009. It was a self-published book called The Lights in the Tunnel, and that's how I sort of got into this topic. And then eventually, after that book was fairly successful, I had a chance to write uh, Rise of the Robots, which was done through a traditional publisher. So it's something I've, I've been thinking about and sort of observing for a very long time, and I do think it's going to be a massive impact ultimately on, on our society and on our economy. You begin the book talking about automation, and uh, the first couple of chapters are really all about that, about how this, as you say, the symbiotic relationship between increasing productivity and rising wages began to dissolve in the 1970s Uh, and the machines are now turning into the workers instead of boosting productivity. Um, So could you talk a little bit about that? Right. So if you look at a graph of productivity and, and wages or incomes for typical people, and I I have that graph in a book, what you'll see is that from the end of world war two, right up until the mid 1970s, those two lines are, are perfectly correlated. They move together. But at that point, around the mid-1970s, the two lines really decouple. And since then, wages have basically been stagnant for typical average people in the United States. And this is one of the things that, of course, has led to political disruption. I mean, things, people were surprised in 2016 when Trump won, and yet maybe we shouldn't be so surprised because this has been going on for decades. You know, a lot of our population is basically being left behind. And there may be many things driving that, but certainly one of them is the advance of technology and the fact that machines increasingly are substituting for people rather than complementing people. So rather than 
making workers more valuable and therefore able to command higher wages, machines are at least in some situations, and I think increasingly, de-skilling a job so that anyone can do it at any wage or maybe automating that job entirely. And that's one of the things that's causing wages to stagnate. Well, at the same time, over the long run, productivity has continued to increase. So we have this big gap opening up between those two um, those two things, and that, that seems to be getting worse. And one of the implications of that is that, you know, as wages stagnate, it means typical average people also have less money to spend. And so you don't have the kind of synergy that you once had where, where you know, advancing productivity basically put more money in everyone's pocket that they could then go out and spend and help drive the economy. So you had this very virtuous circle going on that sort of was a huge economic driver. You don't see that so much anymore. You know, uh, things have become much more unequal. Right. And then the jobs that we have now uh, are in the, what, what you could argue sort of the final phases of robots being able to automate themselves. Right. I mean, you, you, (coughs) excuse me, you wrote the book, published the book in 2015 since then, you know, deep learning, natural language processing, and vision have made vast advancements. Um, you know, even when you wrote the book, there was a company called Momentum Machines that was trying to automate the making of hamburgers. You know, I, I feel that it's only a matter of time when uh, quick serve restaurants are automating their back kitchens, and then McDonald's has already introduced touch screens in, in its McCafes. So that you don't have to have uh, order takers. You know, where, where in the last few years have you seen um, these advancements, uh, it, it, you know, even, even go even further than what you saw in the book when you published it? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely happened. Um, in terms of the technology, you look at things like DeepMind, for example, what it accomplished with, with the AlphaGo system, and, and you look at, I think, the rapid progress we're seeing in self-driving cars, how it looks like that technology could well arrive at a faster rate than what I, you know, what I imagine. You see lots of stuff in the medical arena. I hear all the time about systems that are out-competing doctors in terms of, you know, diagnosing uh, cancer and, and medical images and so forth. So that's really happening. Um, you mentioned Momentum Machines. That company was actually around for a long time, and I wrote about it in the book. But they're they're still there, and they finally finished their their hamburger robot, and they've they've changed their name, or they've opened a restaurant now called Creator in San Francisco, and you can actually go there and uh, you know you know buy a, buy a hamburger, and I guess there are a lot pretty long lines of people waiting to get in right now. So so that's the technology that is finally beginning to be realized, um, and then of course it has competition. There's something called Flippy, I think, is a another approach to a hamburger robot. There's another company here in Silicon Valley called uh, Zoom, which is doing pizza that's, that's made by robots. Um, so I, I think you're right. It's inevitable that fast food certainly is going to be impacted. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that 50 years from now, there's going to be, you know, people working in the McDonald's like there are today. Um, so I, I definitely think there's going to be a big impact there. Um, Another area I think that's clearly likely to be impacted is Amazon warehouses. Uh, right now, Amazon warehouses are kind of a bright spot. You know, you hear that they're hiring lots of people, um, and they are, although you can, you can question what, how great that job is. But 
the robots in those warehouses are clearly going to get a lot better, a lot more dexterous. They're going to be able to do a lot of the things that workers are now doing. Um, as it stands now, there are a lot of workers in those environments and also a lot of robots, and the robots will bring, for example, a whole shelf of inventory to a worker who then has to reach in there and grab the item and put it in the box. But eventually, I think in the not-too-distant too future, the robots will be doing a lot more of that because, because and this is driven in part by deep learning, right, that is allowing to the robots to become much more visually perceptive and, and dexterous and so forth. So this is kind of inevitable across uh, all those types of jobs. Yeah, in fact, in the book, you talk about Kroger automating their warehouses, enabling them to take one pallet, break it down, build mixed pallets. And also, just two weeks ago, the Washington Post did an article on uh, a Chinese warehouse where only a handful of humans uh, worked there. And all they did was oversee the robots uh, and make sure that they didn't malfunction. Um, you know, that, that is definitely uh, seems to be coming about. I also found right. it fascinating. In fact, China yeah. is really on the leading edge of this, and there are <laughs> I've heard of a couple of examples of factories or warehouses that are virtually lights out, you know, in China, meaning that, that there's no one there, so they don't even need to have the lights on. It's just all machines. And generally what you see is that if you're dealing with something that's standardized, you know, it boxes in the air, warehouse or something, and, you know, that happens first. And then, but the real leading edge of automation is building machines that can um, move into the areas of visual perception and dexterity that, that, that humans really excel at, you know, dealing with all different types of items. Like, for example, in, in an Amazon warehouse where you've got to be able to pick all kinds of different things off of a shelf, different shapes and sizes and textures and so forth. Um, those are the areas that so far have really been safe for humans, but even that is now really be really uh, on the verge of being invaded by robots, I think. So, you know, there's going to be a big impact. Yeah, so let, let's move on to that economic impact now and talk about it. I, I, I found it fascinating uh, that in your book you talk about things back in 1968 when, you know, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a sermon, and he talked about uh, the Triple Revolution. And and he even in this, and I find it interesting also that we've talked about you know productivity stag, uh, growing and wages stagnating starting in the 70s. You know, 1968 they created the National Commission on Technology Automation and Economic Progress because they saw that automation was going to create problems, or they felt like it was, but that's gone into disarray. So I, I did some research on that, and I found recently, just back in March, that we started a National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. But I found it fascinating that uh, even though economic risk is in its description, uh, if you read more closely into its charter, it's really more about the economic risk uh, from a military defense and offense perspective, whether we will be uh, – at military risk and therefore invasion and economic risk if we fall behind in artificial intelligence. It doesn't seem to be something that people are talking about today. How do you feel about that, this economic displacement problem? Well, yeah, that's, that's true. And the point of bringing up that, you know, Dr. King's sermon and the Triple Revolution report in, in my book was to demonstrate that this issue has come up many times in the past. I mean, it, it came up, first of all, I guess with the Luddites, right, which were people that, that, that rioted in England 
200 years ago, literally about, you know, you know uh, mechanical weaving machines. And, and since then, it has come up a lot. And uh, the Triple Revolution Report was one of the most prominent episodes. I mean, this is a very, very high-profile report written by, I think there were two Nobel laureates on the team that wrote this report. And, you know, people like Dr. King took notice of it. I mean, it was very much discussed. It was a very hot issue back then. Uh, but then it kind of faded away because, of course, the the things that this report projected didn't didn't come to be right. The the unemployment didn't uh, didn't materialize, so people kind of dismissed it. And and it has gotten to the point where these concerns almost are you know there's a stigma attached to them because they've been brought up so many times in the past. The idea that technology can put people out of work, you know, you you get called a luddite and so forth, and so. For quite a while there, there were you know if you talk to economists, for example, none of them would even want to acknowledge this issue, um, and that's the way it was around the time that I wrote my first book about this back in 2009. But since then, it has changed, and the economists are now beginning to take this issue more seriously. Um, but it is true that that we're not really having a public discussion about this so much, at least not in the United States. There there is a little bit more going on. Um, in Europe, and you know, there, for example, the, the the EU government has has kind of looked into this issue, and you've seen proposals for a, a robot tax and things like that. Um, and there definitely, but, but you know, beyond government and policymaking, there certainly is a, a lot of discussion going on now, and, and that's where things like the basic income are are coming up increasingly and being talked about as well. So, I, I feel that the discussion is coming. You know, it's it's growing in terms of the importance being that is being given, um, and as you said, there's also a big discussion over competing with China in terms of developing AI, and and that absolutely does have military and security applications as well. So that also is a very important discussion. Great. So let's talk about the basic income guarantee that you mentioned, uh, and uh, there's a whole section in the book about it. Um, you also that that sort of also feeds into the idea of your idea in the book that that you are skeptical that we can retrain and educate the people that are going to be displaced not all, not all of those people can be retrained into doing new non automated jobs. Can you talk a little bit more about that Right. So I think what's happening now is that the machines are beginning to essentially displace our core competency, right? Is that our ability to think and learn and solve problems. I mean, increasingly through technologies like deep learning and, and as it advances, that capability is being displaced. And that, that's new, right? I mean, if you ask yourself, well, technology has been advancing for hundreds of years, why aren't we all unemployed? The answer has to be, well, we have this ability to learn, to do things, to adapt. Um, but now we've, we've got machines that are beginning to learn. And I think that that's what's really disruptive and different about this. And I do think that, well, a certain group of people is very likely to excel, the people with the highest capability and, and highest uh, education and skill levels and so forth, especially a lot of people that primarily do routine, repetitive, predictable things, everything from driving cars to working in a warehouse, to sitting at a desk in front of a computer doing relatively routine work. All of that is going to be heavily impacted. And I'm just saying it's probably not realistic to expect to be able to retrain all of those people. That, that you know, Some of them maybe can't become robotics engineers or data scientists or whatever 
the new job is going to be. Um, and so we probably need to have something beyond it. I mean, obviously, we should try to invest in education and try to retrain people to the extent we can. But I'm just saying we should not expect that that's going to be a solution. We're going to need to do more than that. And that's where the idea of a universal basic income comes in. And so what do you think, if we were going to try this and, and improve uh, the education system that we have today, what would you recommend uh, we focus on? What kind of skills or learning would you recommend that the, the new education system in this new world of automation and, and robotics, what, what do you think are the most important skills uh, for right. Our, so there, 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 there are three general areas that I think are going to be relatively secure over the foreseeable future. One is genuine creativity. Are you coming up with new ideas, building something? Um, for the for the present, at least, I think you know that's something that people are going to do rather than machines until we really get into more, much more advanced artificial intelligence. The second area is human human interaction and personal relationships, um, you know, really building sophisticated relationships with people. And this might be caring type roles like a nurse where you really have empathy for a person or in the business world, it might be the kind of job where you really need to have a deep connection with a client to really understand what that person is thinking. Um, those kinds of sophisticated relationship jobs are going to be relatively safe. And then the third area are, are, what I would call skilled trade jobs, jobs that really require a lot of mobility and dexterity in an unpredictable environment. And this would be things like electricians, plumbers, um, and so forth. You know, you know it, to build a robot that does what an electrician or a plumber does is still science fiction, right? I mean, that would be like C-3PO from Star Wars or something. Right? You know, they're going to see that for a long time. So those kinds of jobs, I think, are relatively secure. So basically our education and, and the focus of, all of us should be probably on those areas if we want to keep our jobs safe. And it's notable that one of those areas is not a college thing, right? If you're skilled trades, um, you know, it's something that, that is not something you'd find in a university. So part of the solution is definitely to expand um, community colleges and, 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 and maybe apprenticeships and the kinds of educational programs that, that will allow more people to go into these blue collar type areas. Um, that are going to be relatively protected as well, rather than pushing everyone to go to college. Because, you know, one of the problems is that a lot of college grads end up sitting in front of a computer doing routine things. And those are exactly the jobs that are going to be maybe the easiest to automate because you don't need expensive sensors and robotic arms and all that stuff to automate those jobs. You only need software. Right, right. Okay, so that leads us to the basic income guarantee. Uh, that sounds like we will be pushing further and further towards um, this idea that we are uh, – uh, it's a welfare state, you know, in American terms. It's a welfare state. And, and talk about that. Talk about why you think that's going to work. Well, I mean, the reason I support it is I don't really see an alternative. I mean, there are many other people out there who are much more – evangelist for the idea of a basic income and many people that believe we should have it even if you know we don't have this this technological revolution going on they think it's just a good way to structure society and it's worth noting that although you use the word welfare state and it's very often perceived as being kind of 
socialist or lefty or big government. Actually, that's really not the, the vision for it. And in fact, a lot of very conservative, libertarian type thinkers have supported the basic income in the, in the past. People like Friedrich Hayek is kind of a, a libertarian icon. Uh, and the idea is that rather than having government you know, take over people's lives and provide them with housing and, and, and take care of them or, or having government even worse, take over whole industries and, and, and nationalize those industries and then run them in a way that tries to artificially create jobs. Um, instead of doing those things, you just give people money and you let them go out into the market and you let them spend it. So it's actually a free market approach to a welfare state, if you want to call that. You do give people money, but you just give them the money, no strings attached, and then they go out in the market and they spend it. And so they still play their role as a consumer within the market, which is a very important role. And uh, you know, you, you, you should have a market economy. You still will preserve all the opportunities for entrepreneurship, for you know, building a business and so forth, that, for innovation that are important in capitalism, right, that, that make capitalism successful. So that's the idea. And what you do is you give money to people unconditionally, whether they work or not. And, and you do that because when you, by approaching it that way, you don't destroy the incentive for people to do as much as they can, right? The problem with our existing safety net is that you give money to people only if they're not working. So then if they start working, even at a very low wage, then they risk losing the benefits that they're getting. And so they won't do it. So they're, they're stuck in a poverty trap because there's, a, there's a, in effect, a very, very high marginal tax rate on that first few dollars of going to work. So people don't go to work. They stay unemployed, and they just take the benefits. So what happens with the basic income is it's unconditional. So even if you go to work and earn something, be productive, you still get that, that income. So you can stay home and play video games, but you'll have a very minimal income then, not a very you know, good life. But if you keep your basic income and then also go and do something, then you, you could reach a, a middle-class level um, between the income you generate and your basic income, and that you know, will provide a strong incentive for people to do as much as they can. So I think that's the basic concept that sort of underlies it. And it is an idea that's getting a lot of traction. You hear a lot of people talking about it. Zuckerberg's talked about it, right? Uh, y Combinator in Silicon Valley is, is doing a trial now with basic income. So a lot of the top tech people are, are really beginning to focus on this as a potential way forward. And, and uh, on the other side of this, we, we are automating jobs away, meaning that in, in this case of, of the Chinese warehouse where they had five workers, I think, and uh, just thousands of robots, those thousands of robots aren't paying uh, income taxes. There's no payroll tax taken out of these uh, thousands of robotic workers. So it seems like the government will have less and less uh, you know, income from taxation to pay for this basic income guarantee. Do you think that um, one of the things that we should put in place is a tax, a robotic tax, that in some way replaces the lost uh, payroll taxes uh, that that automation takes away. Right. I mean, we definitely need to change our, our tax scheme, that's for sure, because, I mean, one result of this obviously is inequality, right? If if businesses produce a lower cost, they don't pay that the labor, then 
um, the income taxes on the workers will be less, um, the payroll taxes will be less, so we need to shift it somehow. Um, and that's going to involve taxing you know, businesses or wealthy individuals with high incomes more um, in order to make up that revenue. Now, some people have proposed a robot tax. I, I think that's I'm not a big fan of that. For Chris, first of all, how do you define a robot? If it's a, a physical robot in a factory, okay, that's easy. But what if it's just software? What if it's just something integrated into the enterprise software that the company uses? How do you figure out what exactly is a robot and what to tax? Um, that seems very difficult to me. And another thing is that, you know, there are issues with international competition, right? That, that if we have a robot tax and China doesn't, then of course that's going to make us less competitive. So my my own view is that a, a simpler shift would would be a lot easier. Just simply say, you know, we're going to tax capital at a higher rate and, and, you know, labor at not such a high rate, right? Because that's essentially what's happening is that income is shifting away from labor toward capital because capital is becoming more capable, right? It can be displaced workers. And of course, we know that ownership of capital is very highly concentrated, right? Most people don't own much in the way of capital. That's true even in the U.S., but if you look Globally, I mean, very, very few people own anything. Really, the only asset they own is the value of their labor. And as that deteriorates, it's a big problem. So that's the problem we have to solve. So let's let's finish up with your new book, Architects of Intelligence. Does this new book talk, talk a little bit about that future and about uh, where you think we're heading? Uh, what what are we going to see when this comes out in November? Well, this book is a little bit different from my, my first book. This book is um, a series of interviews with about 22 or 23 of the very top artificial intelligence research scientists and entrepreneurs in, in the world. So the very most high-level famous people, um, Dennis Hassabis, the CEO of DeepMind, uh, Jeffrey Hinton, the guy that, that pretty much is, is generally credited with sort of inventing deep learning, or at least in its current form and so forth. So very, very high-level people. And the, and the idea of the book is to talk to them about all of these issues, to talk to them about artificial intelligence technology, how is it going to evolve, what, what, um, what paths are going to be um, the most promising is it is deep learning the way forward? You know, the use of of deep neural networks, or is there going to be some poach that's going to arise? And and they actually disagree about that. Uh, they have a lot of different things to say. And then what about the path to true artificial intelligence? You know, human level AI. When are we going to see that? Uh, what 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 is the path to that look like? Um, so these are really fascinating questions. And then also a lot of a lot of talk about. Um, the social impact, uh, the impact on the job market. Um, there are many other risks and concerns associated with artificial intelligence that we worry about. For example, bias is a thing that, that um, is of concern that's, that's come up recently. There are different cases where machine learning algorithms appear to be biased um, racially or, or in terms of gender and so forth. So people are working on that. Um, security is a huge issue. Um, the risk that these technologies might be weaponized and so forth. So I talk about all those issues, um, but but 
mostly about the technology itself and how it's going to evolve. So it's, I think it's a book that will be very interested to a very wide range of people, um, people that, that are working in AI or in deep learning, you know, are, are going to be interested because these are really the brightest minds in the field. And then I think people that are just learning about it or, or, um, maybe you know just interested in what artificial intelligence means for our future will be interested as well because there is a lot of hype and speculation out there you know you hear people like elon musk talking about summoning the demon and and ai is more dangerous than nuclear weapons and the thing is elon musk is not really an artificial intelligence expert so the the purpose of this book is to talk to the people that know the most and see what they really think and try to um, navigate through some of the hype and, and even the fear-mongering and, and really get a realistic view of what these technologies could mean for us. That sounds amazing. I can't wait to read it. So one last question then. What do you, what do you think the future holds for us? Do you think that unless we do something drastic and quick, we're going to have a huge economic displacement, we're going to see the next uh, uh, recession and high unemployment rates uh, skyrocket at some point in the near future because of these technologies? Or do you think it'll be gradual enough that we will be able to figure it out? I'm worried that it's going to be drastic. I'm worried that we will have a, a big economic schism in the country and it may be in the world and, um, and it's going to take a long time to fix it. Yeah, I mean, that's a possibility, and I worry about that as well. But the, the two answers, I don't know. Maybe it will be gradual, and let's hope that it will be gradual. Maybe it will be very disruptive. I, You know, when people ask me for an estimate, when is this disruption coming? I typically say 10, 15 years, somewhere in that range, maybe longer, um, although certainly certain aspects of it could be long before that. Uh, and that's a fairly conservative view. I mean, I know other people that think it might be five years. Um the other thing that's really important to keep in mind is right now we have a very low unemployment rate. Things look good, but we have been in this recovery from, from the financial crisis for basically a decade now, which is extraordinarily long. I mean, you talk to any economist, I, th- I don't think they can give you another example of a recovery that's gone on this long. So, you know, we're going to have another recession, right? I mean, you know, the business cycle has not disappeared just because we've been in this recovery a long time. It's coming. Sooner or later, we're going to have another recession. And what the evidence shows is that it's really during recessions that companies really begin to leverage this technology and they, they become more efficient. Um, and what they find is that, you know, they lay a bunch of people off as a result of the economic downturn and then the technology uh, makes it possible for them to not rehire those people. So there is definitely a real risk that the next recession is going to, you know, this, this could be a big factor in that, um, even if not within 10 years or so. So I do worry about that. Um, Generally, I'm optimistic in the long run. I believe we will figure this out and it may well, you know, probably will require something like a basic income, but that's in the long run. In the shorter intermediate term, this is a tough problem to fix. It's going to be an enormous challenge politically to come up with viable solutions to to this problem. And I, you know, eventually if we can do that, then I think it's very optimistic and we can have, we might end up with the Star Trek economy, right? Where, you you know, we have lots of abundance and people don't have to work as much and more time to do other things. So we can look forward to that. But before we can get to that, 
we're going to have to navigate through this transition. And it's, I fear it's not going to be easy. Yeah, it's very scary. And hopefully uh, with books like yours and others starting to bang the drum, uh, maybe society and the government can uh, get us better ready. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. I'd love to talk to you more about all the other pieces of the book that we didn't get to. And again, I look forward to uh, reading Architects of Intelligence when it comes out. Thank you very much, Martin Ford, for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. That wraps up another episode of Hidden Layers. We look forward to having you back next time. Thank you.